This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. World Championship competitor, Olympic bronze medalist. I mean, the resume is very, very long and very, very distinguished for Lauren Gray, <laughs> who is here from Scotland. Lauren, thanks so much for sitting down with us. No problem at all. No, it's great to be here. So take us through what's happening for the curlers right now. The draw is just, am I talking too loud, first of all? Can, do I no, I think you're perfect. Quietly? I think like I think the more noise, the better here. Like everyone's cheering and just shouting out whenever they want. So I think I don't, don't worry about them. There'll be lots of noise coming soon. Okay, well, the first part, of any kind of game that is going on right now. What is happening for the curlers? What are, what are they thinking about right now? Oh, they're thinking about trying to get some points. I mean, it's a bit of a crazy event because, you know, you put in so much work over the first few days and it can all go away on the last day. And that's almost what happened to us. We were letting it slip through our fingers last year. So um, they're trying to just get as much of a lead as possible. And um, it's fun as well because you're playing for a bigger team so there is definitely an element of added pressure as well because you want to do it for your, your wider team as well so it's managing the nerves and trying to trying to get another point on the board. Yesterday when the Continental Cup of Curling got going everything was very familiar. You were playing with people that you knew. Yes. Now all of a sudden they scrambled everything up. You will play tonight. Did you play this morning as well? No, I didn't play. I've only played yesterday morning so far. Okay, so but you'll play later on tonight. Yep. What do you think this is going to be like playing with people who you really don't know well it's an interesting one a lot of the european players we sort of got to know each other on the tour over the last few years and it's actually the same team as last year for us so we played in different combinations and got to know each other a bit through that um, but there's a couple of new players in the teams and they've mixed the orders up so uh, last year i was playing lead and now i'm playing third so i'm going to be in the head with anna hasselberg and so yeah, I think you just need to, for me, like I always just try and stick to doing everything the same as what I would normally do. Uh, and we're very lucky that in Team Europe, everyone has fantastic English. Um, so that brings down a barrier, you know, that maybe would have been an issue before. So um, yeah, just trying to stay, stick to your normal processes and try and make some shots. But it's definitely, it's a challenge for everyone. And that's what makes it kind of entertaining. Otherwise, like you say, you're with Anna Hasselberg, who is the skip of Team Sweden, and if, if she didn't have very good English, you'd probably be grabbing a Swedish-English dictionary right now. You yeah, or we would be doing some form of hand signals. We actually did a little, just for fun, we did a little crash course this morning. Me and Vicky and Team Scotland, we did a little crash course with, with, crash course with the Swedish girls so we could put some Swedish words in there as well just to kind of make it a bit fun because we don't always want to ask them to be speaking English so the words in there so I'll do my best I might I, I don't think it's going to be great but I'm going to do my best definitely how much difference is there in terms of terms for curling um there's 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 some things that are the same like the word hack that's the same but um yeah it, it is a pretty it's a different language so it is it's it's all everyone's trying to say the same thing but in different ways so just trying to learn the right terms so don't want to say the wrong thing at the wrong time and then we miss the shot and it's on me so uh yeah we're just trying to get that down as as good as possible well a shot has just been made on one of the sheets yeah lots of cheering right now here at the sports center western fair district we're talking with lauren gray who's from scotland are you okay with the weather that's going on right now normally we the stuff that's falling out of the sky now isn't rain. It's usually snow. Yeah, we're listen. We're comfortable. We're and we're in our comfort zone right now with the snow. It was quite cold when we got here and crisp. That was that was really really nice for us. It's not back home at the moment. It's about like 
five degrees and raining. So this is this is we're we're happy. We feel at home. Okay, well, we're glad we could bring the weather to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> this event being here, we hear that you know. You guys go to Vegas on alternating years usually, and you used to go to Vegas for this event exclusively, and now you come to London, but even though we're not Las Vegas, you guys are still having a good time, right? Oh, we're having such an amazing time, and like the hotel that we're staying in and all the hospitality there, we've had fans coming up to us. I know we're on Canadian soil, but we've had fans coming up and supporting us, which we know that we're going to get here, and it's just such a nice feeling to feel included, and people are just cheering for good shots, and I think that's very much in the spirit of the game as well. So, no, we're really we're having an amazing time. You just went through the European Championships. How did things go? Uh, really good. Um, we uh, well, Unfortunately, obviously, we were disappointed to lose in the final. Uh, we lost to Team Sweden, which is Team Hasselberg, um, on the last shot. Anna played an unbelievable shot to win. But for us, like we are kind of new lineup this year. And to even make the final and be playing as well as we were, we were really encouraged by that for going forward for the next couple of years. So it was, it's always hard to lose, you know, lose a final, but we were actually really, really happy with, with how we were getting on there. Sometimes you have to lose and then all of a sudden you get that little extra and then the next time around, exactly. it's in there when you need it, right? Exactly. And, and we were kind of, we were aiming for top four. So to actually come second to get the silver medal, you know, that was actually exceeded our expectations for you know what we were aiming for in terms of like trajectory for our performance so we were actually we were actually really really happy with that so we feel we feel like we're going in the right direction well you've been a part of so many different successes take us back to the olympic games when when we talk about curling obviously this this is a fun event but still it's a competitive oh, event very competitive yes but you have the world championships incredibly competitive where would the olympics rank in curling is that a pinnacle or is it kind of olympics and worlds together the olympics is definitely the pinnacle um, certainly the way we feel. I, 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 I say that fairly confidently for all the nations that it's definitely the pinnacle. And, and, you know, world championships and European championships are an amazing achievement, but there's just something about those rings, you know, this, it just makes it extra, extra special. And, um, yeah, it's just something that we're, we're all desperate to go after and get an Olympic medal. And so, yeah, it's definitely, definitely the pinnacle for us. And you've done it. Yeah, we got. I was actually the. I was the fifth player, but I was there um, in Sochi. The girls got a bronze medal, and I was part of the team there. And then we went to Pyeongchang last year, um, and I was playing in the team, one of the the starting four. Uh, and we lost out on bronze on the very last shot. That's the thing. Anyone listening and watching curling knows it's it's such fine margins. It comes down to half an inch and you know it's very it's very difficult but it's also awesome when you win like that so you know you just have to take the game as it is we love playing it and stuff but yeah the olympics is an experience that you just it's hard to describe really can you take us through the last shot as someone who's taking it and then also having to watch that last shot and wondering whether they will yeah, well, that's, draw in or i've been i've been in, in you know both scenarios myself because um, for the bronze medal in Sochi, Eve um, drew uh, the forefoot to, for the bronze medal, and I was standing watching. And I you know anyone that watches curling knows it's actually the hardest thing to watch because you can't influence anything, and you're not, you know, you can't put your energy into doing something to influence the situation. So my hands were shaking like you wouldn't believe. It was just the most petrifying moment of my life. Um, but yeah, when I was on the ice in Pyeongchang, it is scary, but you're very focused and determined on what you're doing. Um, and that that was a hit, but you know it's, it's it's all different for different shots. But 
you know, you know, sometimes you're going to lose like that, and then maybe you know further down the line you're going to win like that, and so you just kind of have to just take it on the chin. It's 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 a tough game. It is tough. Lauren Gray here as part of Team Europe. They have the early lead. Now the skins matches are coming up. All kinds of things kind of go wild this weekend. You can check out curling.ca. But that five point you mentioned last year, you guys yes. get out oh to Yes, oh my lead. goodness, that last day was, that was crazy, crazy, crazy. We only needed a point or a point and a half going on the skins game. And it, everything came down to the last shot in the eighth end. And so, yeah, it was it was a crazy moment the the atmosphere was just totally electric it was just awesome but to win last year because that's something you know team canada team north america they've done some winning at this event oh they've had yeah lots of success in this event yeah and then you guys come back and, and you win one what was that win like it was so cool it was my first um continental cup and as you say we're in vegas we're in a sold out arena and it was just like here the fans were so into it they were so engaged um, but yeah, to come and play in my first Continental Cup, it was just incredible. It was terrifying and incredible at the same time. But, um, you know, winning was really cool because we we hadn't won in a few years and there was kind of, we were starting to get kind of bowled over a bit. So it was nice to kind of show, do you know what, actually, no, we, we you know, we, we can step up to that plate as well. So who knows how it's going to turn out this year. It's still, as you say, it's still such early days and even coming up to the last day, it's still in anybody's hands. And I think that's what makes this event so like so awesome and so fun to watch. What got you into curling? Um, it was actually my dad. He uh, started it as a social sport um, when he moved out of the city to kind of meet new people in Scotland. And um, he took me and my brothers when we were big enough because uh, he really enjoyed it. And we started playing and the rest is history, really. We started going to a Saturday morning club and... Uh, we started playing more and more regularly and playing on the junior circuit in Scotland. So uh, we always laugh about it because it was such a random way to come to the sport. And in Scotland, it's very common that it's it's in your family and generations curl. But I'm actually, you know, first generation in my family and my brother's playing as well. And it's just something that we really took to and loved and met lots of friends through and played from a young age. So I'm very, very grateful to my dad for that. And we always kind of laugh about how... You know, coincidental it is that I've, got, you know, it's my full-time job now, and it's, it's, it's defined a big part of my life. So I feel very, very lucky that that happened. Well, congratulations! Does your brother also play at a high level? Both, both my brothers curled when they were a little younger. They've stopped now, uh, but they were both great curlers as well. So yeah, it's, wow. it's been, it's been a journey. Best of luck here i know there are a lot of team canada fans but it's a fun enough event we've got people here cheering for team europe as well absolutely no they're cheering good shots and it's it's awesome well we wish you the best of luck at everything else that comes and uh here's hoping that you get to see that last shot go in the right direction go in the yeah, right it's spot gonna be exciting. Thank one you very day at the olympics thanks again lauren. thank you so much that is lauren gray from team europe Fire Inspector Sean Routenberg had a chance to tell us about a story involving the owner of 19 Marmara Street in the city of London, and he started to tell us kind of what the story was and, and what had happened. We have inspectors all over the city doing uh, fire inspections of, of various types of buildings, but um, in this scenario, per se, I was just doing a general fire safety inspection um, when we could just go into a building and... Uh, make sure that it's compliant with the fire code. So um, we went into this building, or I did, and 
conducted a, a fire safety inspection, making sure that it was compliant with the Ontario Fire Code. And um, multiple violations were found uh, within the building. And following following the inspection, uh, we issued what's called a fire inspection order. And um, that basically, what that document is, is it's a legal document that outlines the violations that were found. It references um, sections of the Ontario Fire Code and gives time to comply with uh, uh, the deficiencies so we can bring the building back up to the standards of the fire code to make sure it's safe for everyone that's there, living there or visiting there. And when we're talking about violations, can we get our heads around what that could be? Would it be a missing smoke detector on a level? Could it be a missing fire extinguisher? Could it be something more? Yeah, so there's various uh, types of violations that we see. Uh, depending on what kind of occupancy of the building that uh, is being inspected. In this relation uh, to the building, um, it was minor violations for some of the stuff, um, basically doing um, monthly inspections for um, certain fire protection equipment like extinguishers, emergency lights, things like that, um, and then some combustible material in the hallways. But the, the major issue was um, uh, providing documentation to the fire department for the annual fire alarm reports. Ah, gotcha. Okay, and then the individual in charge is given a period of time to get all of that done, to get everything up to code, and in this case, what happened? Well, I issued the order, gave uh, 14 days for the owner to comply, um, and upon uh, reinspection of the building after the compliance date, uh, the owner did comply with some of the um, deficiencies, um, but the owner was not able to provide uh, documentation uh, in relation to annual fire alarm testing. So basically any building that has a fire alarm system in it um, is required to have it uh, tested by a certified company on an annual basis, and they are uh, supposed to be able to provide documentation of that inspection um, to the fire department upon request. So the owner was not able to um, provide that documentation. And when you don't provide the documentation and when it can't be proven that you've done this, uh, things can happen. What was the result of this? So um, we proceeded to uh, charge the owner um, by way of a summons to um, appear in court for failing to comply with a fire inspection order. And that's under the Fire Protection and Prevention Act. Um, That's the act, the provincial act that um, uh, regulates um, our enforcement um, actions. And... um, so we, we issued the summons, and uh, the owner was um, required to attend court and answer the charges um, that were that were against him. And did the owner do that? Yes. So the owner was notified, and a uh, trial took place yesterday on uh, January 9th, and the owner was uh, convicted um, uh, by a justice of the peace at um, London Provincial Offences Court for failing to comply with the order I issued. We're talking with Fire Inspector Sean Routenberg from the London Fire Department. And upon that conviction, I mean, we know that there there are things like fines that are out there. Was there a fine in this case? And if so, how big was it? Yeah, so the fine that was issued um, to the owner was $50,000. Um, so the way that the province is moving in relation to fire code enforcement is we're not seeing a lot of compliance over the past um let's say, decade or so. So a lot of departments are moving more towards um, fining owners for not complying with the fire code. So there is set fines within the Fire Protection and Prevention Act that outline um, how much we could fine and how much, the let's say, the prosecution could ask for for a penalty 
and in this case, uh, the agreed upon fine was um, fifty thousand dollars that was issued. And if we're talking about the building, which is listed at being at 19 Marmara Street in London, are we talking about an apartment building, a, a multi, a multi-dwelling unit? What is this? Yeah, so it's a it's a two-story building, um, and it it consists of 38 separate units. What we would classify as a, a rooming, boarding, lodging uh, building, and that's uh, just defined under the fire code. And basically, each unit has um, what would be like a bachelor-style apartment. Um, with a kitchenette, and then each floor would have um, one central bathroom that services all the units on the floor, almost like a dorm kind of style. But uh, it would be classified as basically, uh, if you wanted to talk about that, like a rooming house. Okay. Well, Fire Inspector Rutenberg, thank you so much for the work that you do in keeping people safe, and uh, keep it up. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. We want to talk some sustained jobs in the province of Ontario because early in December, Mr. Fideli had made an announcement that 271,600 jobs had been created from June 2018 until December 2019. Mr. Fideli, can you hear us? Mike, I'm chuckling because it sounds like you're having a riot in, in uh, over there, and uh, I'm envious of you getting to watch all that great curling today. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It is it's the best of the best in the world, which is wow. absolutely wild. Wow. This is this is like the world championship, but you just kind of cut it down a little bit and everybody's kind of in a good mood because wow. it's not necessarily a, an Olympic gold on the line or it's not a spot at the world's on the line. So yeah, it's a really unique atmosphere. So it is a lot of fun and, and it's definitely one of those good news things here in London. We want to talk about good news stuff that came out just before the end of 2019 because yeah. I've sent that big number a few times, 271,600 hundred jobs so can we kind of describe where those jobs have come from and kind of where they piece in yes uh i can tell you that uh, in november while the country lost seventy-one thousand jobs ontario gained fifteen thousand four hundred jobs this month the month of december uh ontario gained another twenty-five thousand one hundred jobs so we are the job creation for the nation. Um, this brings us, since our election, to 296,700 jobs created in the province of Ontario. Just a, 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 a remarkable reaction to uh, all of the positive changes that Premier Ford and our government has made for the business community. So a lot of times people will ask questions about certain jobs that part-time jobs can show up in statistics that do we have part-time jobs in these numbers or would these be sustained full-time jobs? Uh, Mike, of this 25,100, they are virtually all full-time private sector jobs. That's, That's all right, full-time private yep. sector. And in fact, of that 25,100 full-time private sector jobs, 2,000 of them were created in London, Ontario. So London has really? uh, had a very good, a very good uh, month of December. Um, and we're really proud of these uh, job numbers, Mike. Um, uh, 
we made a lot of changes as a government. Uh, we heard from the business community that they they needed um, uh, the cost of doing business Ontario to be reduced in order to hire more people. And we've cut the cost of doing business in Ontario by $5 billion last year. It'll be $5.4 billion this year. And this is every year going forward. And the business community did exactly what we expected they would do. They hired 296,700 people. Now, again, we're talking a lot of numbers in all of this. Do we know what types of businesses? Can we group them at all to say, okay, Canada is this, or in a better way, Ontario is this, and attracting these kinds of jobs? Well, we're right across the board, to be perfectly frank, but where we've seen a real um, move uh, is in the uh, tech sector. Uh, We have 375,000 people who work for the 22,000 tech companies in Ontario. Um, it's interesting in the automotive sector, we've seen a lot of connected and autonomous vehicle expansion programs. GM with 700 employees in Markham, uh, Ford with 400 employees in Ottawa. This is, again, connected and autonomous vehicles. Uber just opened a facility on Bloor Street in Toronto for connected and autonomous vehicles. 300 employees, more coming. So we've seen uh, the uh, uh, whole autonomous uh, vehicle sector uh, really taking root in Ontario as well. Um, right across the 4, 401 highway, we see a lot of auto parts manufacturers continuing to, uh, uh, to uh, produce uh, at, great, uh, at great numbers. We are talking with Vic Fidelli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. In terms of lost jobs, those will always have numbers to them as well. How do we do in the ratio of jobs that are no longer here and new jobs that are coming in? Well, it's interesting. Um, We saw uh, some self-employed workers decrease in the month of uh, uh, December. We saw private sector jobs actually increase by more than 46,000, but public sector jobs decreased in the month of December by 4,200. So when you net it all out, it was 25,000 new full-time private sector jobs uh, created in Ontario. And then, Mr. Fidelli, as a final question, we talked about Canada and the fact that the numbers are not the same, that Ontario actually goes kind of against what's happening across the country. What do you see as being the reason for that, and, and do you see these trends continuing? Well, uh, Ontario uh, handles the business community differently than the federal government. We, we cut our WSIB rates by over $2 billion, returned that money to the business community who hired people. We allow them to write off their equipment in year. It doesn't sound like much, but it saved the business community a billion dollars. We cut small business tax rates by 8.7%. The small businesses took that money and did exactly what we expected. They hired people. So this is our message to the federal government, too. Increase taxes. Do not create jobs. Reducing taxes, cutting red tape, that's what creates jobs across Ontario. Mr. Fidelli, if you have time, I know it's a little bit of a hike from where you usually wind up. Get down here to the continent. But thank you. We've loved the information that you've just given. So have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike. Enjoy. I'm jealous. Enjoy. Take care. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. 
Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 